This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where we have reached another grim milestone. The health department reporting 174 additional fatalities from COVID-19 Wednesday. That increases the statewide death toll to 10,106. Florida also added 4,115 new coronavirus cases Wednesday to push the statewide total to more than 584,000. And more than 5,300 COVID patients are now hospitalized in the Sunshine State. But Governor Ron DeSantis says it's getting better. Uh, if you look at the ED visits for COVID-like illness, uh, they're as low as they've been since the middle of June. Uh, if you look at the hospital census, uh, continues to decline. COVID-19 gets all the headlines now, but the governor would also like you to be aware of other problems that have dropped out of the news, like mental illness and opioid overdoses. Just last month, there was, what, 60-some thousand overdoses in the state of Florida, and that's up significantly year over year uh, uh, from where we were. James Liss of Orlando has spent more than 20 years teaching, but he's going to resign if he's forced back into the classroom tomorrow. For some reason, some people don't think it's a serious risk, but I do not feel that um, I would be in a safe environment uh, for my mother-in-law's sake. For my sake, too, but more so for her, and I would resign. Liss was one of the witnesses at a civil trial where the teachers union is challenging the state order forcing schools to reopen. Today on Sunrise, a deep dive on the aftermath of Florida's pandemic primary. The governor says everything went smoothly, and voting rights advocates agree. One of the major successes was really the slow turnout. You know, many, many voters didn't show up at the polls, uh, which, you know, in some ways worried us until we started seeing the numbers. And, and it just turns out that many voters voted by mail or dropped off their uh, vote by uh, at a drop box or um, voted early. But Brad Ashwell, with all voting as local, says the November election won't be as easy unless the state makes some changes. We'll also have your daily calendar of political events and check in with a Florida man accused of making repeated visits to his seven-year-old neighbor's window while wearing absolutely nothing at all. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Thursday, August 20th. Florida sets a new record in COVID fatalities every single day, but Wednesday's report from the health department was a milestone. We've now passed 10,000. The official number is 10,106. But you'd never know that from listening to the governor. Ron DeSantis continues to insist things really are getting better. We had, for new cases, the lowest uh, percent positive that we've had since the middle of June. Uh, if you look at the ED visits for COVID-like illness, uh, they're as low as they've been since the middle of June. Uh, if you look at the hospital census, uh, continues to decline uh, up and down the state uh, in terms of COVID positive patients. And so um, uh, th those are all good trends. Those are all positive uh, signs. While most of us are still fretting over COVID-19, the governor has new concerns. DeSantis says the epidemic of opioid overdoses has gotten worse during the pandemic. Right now in the state of Florida, we've got about 6,000 COVID positive patients who are hospitalized. And not all of them are hospitalized being treated for COVID. Some are incidentally positive who are hospitalized for something else. Uh, but, you know, out of 21 and a half million people, you have about 6,000. It's important. Uh, we obviously deal with it. But just last month, there was, what, 60-some thousand overdoses in, in the state of Florida. And that's up significantly year over year uh, uh, from where we were. We've seen overdose deaths increase uh, over these last uh, few months. And this is having a profound effect and it's affecting a very broad reach of people in the state of Florida. 
so, so we've got to dig in. Uh, we've got to be able to, to juggle multiple balls. We've got to be able to handle more than one problem when it comes to health care. While the governor talked about overdosing and mental health, his lawyers were fighting it out in court with the teachers union. The Florida Education Association accuses the governor and the education commissioner of ignoring the science and opening schools before they are safe. Orlando attorney Jacob Stewart told the judge it's dangerous for students and teachers, not to mention a violation of the Florida Constitution. This case comes down to a very simplistic idea. Florida's Constitution guarantees students in Article 9, Section 1A, the right to be safe and secure, the same for teachers. And this isn't about conservative or liberal or political or what's going on in Tallahassee, Washington, D.C. This is what's going on in each of our 67 counties. And unfortunately, the defendants in this case, specifically Governor DeSantis and Commissioner Corcoran, they have failed in their duty. Their confusion and their ability to create this in this false narrative about having this absence of clarity has led to a pandemic that is much worse than it should have been. Clearly, the defendants aren't at fault for causing a pandemic. No one is arguing that. But elected officials, especially in the highest executive office in one of the greatest states in the union, have a duty to do better and not just do better, but to comply with the Constitution. Right now, for us to open up, there has to be a plan and there's not one that makes sense. And if there if there is a plan, the circumstances need to be particularly a green light circumstances. And once we have those circumstances that are perfect for us to open or as reasonably safe as possible, there must be proper mitigation. The governor's office and the defendants in this case are failing their constitutional duty. No one on our side or any, any party wants school to close forever. We want schools to open just the right way, ensuring we protect teachers, students, administrative staff, and all the citizens of Florida, Your Honor. Tallahassee attorney David Wells represents the Department of Education at this hearing. He says parents should be able to send their kids back to the classroom if that's their choice. He also claims some sort of risk is inevitable when schools reopen. There is no zero risk situation. Any opening of the schools will bring about some type of risk. The greater risk is the closing of the schools. No one is railroading students and throwing them on a train to schools that have not been asked to do what is necessary but emergency order six does most critically is, is two things. One, it does provide an option for parents to get their kids back to school. The fight here is caused by the fact that 1,600,000 parents made the choice that they'd like their children to get back to school. Ranges from, depending on the school district, as low as 30% of the parents to as high as 80% of the parents making these decisions to come back to school, counting on their school boards to have followed the guidance and advice made available to them for providing for sanitation, providing for face masks, providing for the other items that are necessary to do that. At the end of the day, there's no student who's being forced back to school. These students are going back because they want to and because their parents want to. There's no teacher that's being forced to go back to school. The districts all have discretion to work with teachers and try to accommodate ones who do not believe they can be there, whether it be through virtual teaching or the like. There are likely going to be teachers because of the circumstances who will find it unsafe to come in and cannot make accommodations uh, through the local school board. And they'll have to make the same tough choice 
that the, the men and women in Florida that worked in Walmarts or Publix have had to make that if it's not safe for them to go, they may not be able to do so. The union has uh, negotiated contracts for each of the teachers and the union has already taken action, at least in Orange County, to argue that they're entitled to relief under that. The teachers have a way to resolve and address their issues. There are hard choices that are here and there's righteous concerns, but we've got to be able to move forward and try to open the schools. One man facing that dilemma is James List, who teaches high school biology in Orlando. His 81-year-old mother-in-law lives at the family home. He does not want to bring COVID home from school, but he's been ordered to report for work tomorrow in front of a class full of kids and is not being allowed to teach remotely. Uh, you know, there are definite risk factors. I have high blood sugar, uh, not quite diabetes yet, but, you know, uh, a, a con that's a concern to me. But just being the age I am and knowing how indiscriminate the, the virus is, I do have concerns for my own health. But my primary concern is bringing a virus home and infecting um, my mother-in-law. You said you've been a teacher for 21 years and you've dedicated um, yourself to this profession. You currently are scheduled to go back to in-person learning. If there is no change in the governing practices and Orange County opens brick and mortar on Friday, will you go back? So if, if there's no change, um, I'm going to have to explain class by class to my students that I can't return. And it's okay. And no, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm not gonna choose. I mean, I've, I've chosen my kids, my, my students over so many difficult things, um, but I, I can't put my family at risk. I can't put my mother-in-law risk, at risk uh, and it's a serious risk. And for some reason, some people don't think it's a serious risk but I do not feel that um, I would be in a safe environment uh, for my mother-in-law's sake. For my sake too, but more so for her. And I would resign. No further questions, Your Honor. Liz is not the only veteran teacher who is ready to call it quits. Florida Education Association President Frederick Ingram says it's happening all across the state. I've never seen anything quite like this year uh, where we are uh, faced with life or death situations. We're faced with um, you know, something that we really don't have under control here in the state of Florida. And my colleagues um, around this state are, are frantic, panicked, uh, and, 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 and just uh, have a high degree of angst uh, as it relates to going back to school this year. But, but to answer your question, of course they want to go back to school. They want to do it, and they want to do it safely. They don't want to put their lives on the line or their kids' lives on the line. There has been this entire angst, it, it, we, what we believe, it has thrown uh, our public schools in chaos. People are being forced or choosing to retire. Uh, people are, are choosing to not go back to their schools. People are choosing to go to another career. People are choosing to take leaves in numbers that are increasing every day. The teachers union is asking the judge to issue an injunction preventing the state from enforcing the school reopening order. They rested their case Wednesday. Today, the state will offer up its defense. Next up on Sunrise, a deep dive into the pandemic primary. Florida has an unfortunate history of electoral dysfunction, but voting rights groups say Florida's primary did not contribute to our rather dubious reputation. You're listening to the Sunrise podcast from Florida Politics, and we're much obliged. 
The Florida Hospital Association has released the OPEN plan, designed to allow Florida's safe resumption of elective surgeries and procedures. OPEN stands for O, observe the COVID-19 rate of community occurrence. P, prevent transmission. E, establish the process to restore elective surgeries and procedures. And N, network with all healthcare providers. You can read the OPEN plan today at FHA.org. Welcome back to Sunrise. Florida has had a rotten reputation for running elections ever since the presidential recount of 2000. And as someone who covered that extended nightmare, I can tell you we really did deserve all the lampooning and the snide comments. Every election since then has been a chance to prove we finally got our act together. And Governor DeSantis says that was the case with Tuesday's pandemic primary. We had worked hard, Secretary of State, uh, helping the supervisors, you know, with making sure their systems were good. And, um, you know, I think that they did a really good job. Uh, we're ready to, to do it. Um, you know, we'll learn if there was anything to do, offer uh, additional support uh, in, before the general election. We did, uh, had a lot of mail voting, you know, in Florida. You know, it's a safe way to do it. You request the ballot, you get it, you send it in. It's not just ballots floating everywhere. Uh, so a lot of folks availed themselves of that. And that obviously will be uh, something that will be uh, available uh, in the fall as well. Of course, you expect that sort of talk from the governor, but voting rights advocates agree with the overall assessment. Brad Ashwell, with All Voting is Local, says everything worked as planned. Uh, our primary election was, was largely a success. There were some problems, but, but by and large, it went pretty smoothly, and turnout was much higher than 2016. We had 3.8 million voters, so 28% turnout versus about 2.9 million in 2016, so you know, almost a million more voters. Uh, than the 2016 primary. One of the major successes was really the slow turnout. You know, many, many voters didn't show up at the polls, uh, which, you know, in some ways worried us until we started seeing the numbers. And, and it just turns out that many voters voted by mail or dropped off their uh, vote by, uh, at a drop box or um, voted early. Um, according to the state numbers, about 2.3 million voted by mail, um, 558,430 voted early. You know, a lot of our groups have been pushing for vote by mail and early voting as a way to uh, safely vote given the COVID crisis. And um, I think I think the quiet slowness of yesterday's election was really a success um, for both the supervisors of elections and our voters. Um, all that said, there's still a lot of work to be done uh, to make sure we're ready for November. Um, it's important to note that November will look very different than yesterday. The ballot will be longer. We'll have a contentious presidential election. Uh, we have a very real concern about a coordinated voter challenge campaign for the first time in decades. And we, you know, we can just expect a much larger turnout in November. Patty Brigham with the League of Women Voters says we set new records for voting by mail and early voting. And she believes the state should make it easier to do that without having to show up on Election Day. The 2020 primary proved that Florida's voters want to vote early and preferably by mail. Polling places, they may have been quiet, but Floridians clearly raised their voices with the power of their early vote. So let's give credit where credit is due to the voters. With Floridians taking advantage of early voting under a major pandemic, we absolutely must prepare for what will most certainly be a historic turnout in the November 3rd general election. The concerns over the post office remain. While the postmaster general uh, Louis DeJoy has said he will suspend any policy or operational changes until after the presidential elections. Questions remain. Uh, the changes that were proposed were highly concerning. 
because of the catastrophic effect they would have had on our elections this year, or and indeed would have if, if uh, these, the suspension isn't honored. Indeed, many voters were left wondering whether their mailed ballots would arrive in time to be counted. The resultant threat on voter confidence still lingers. So while we're pleased that the wide-scale disruptive changes made by the Postmaster General will temporarily cease, we are still concerned about how to make the U.S. Postal Service whole again, including restoring the deficiencies which these decisions caused in the midst of a pandemic and just months before a national election. The agency must present a clear plan for how it will replace the discarded equipment, reverse the damage done, and restore the American public's confidence in our postal system. Michael Pernick with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund says one easy way to improve voting by mail is to simply have county elections officers install more of those drop boxes where you can return a mail-in ballot without actually having to mail it through the post office. Although the primary generally went smoothly, it reveals that Florida's readiness um, and Florida still has work to do as we head into the general election. In particular, in the days leading up to the election, it became clear that some voters did not have easy access to drop boxes to allow them to deposit their vote-by-mail ballots. Some voters reported not knowing where to bring their vote-by-mail ballots on Election Day. Some voters had to wait in lines of vehicles just to drop off their ballots. Nevertheless, we saw mask-wearing Floridians head to their local precincts in droves to exercise their right to vote. None of those voters could be absolutely certain that they would avoid contracting this deadly virus and bringing it home to their loved ones, yet they went to the polls anyway. These voters persevered so they could participate in our democracy. Election officials should take steps now to protect those voters and ensure a safe and smooth general election. In particular, election officials should dramatically expand the availability of drop boxes so that voters can safely and securely deposit their vote-by-mail ballots. This pandemic, which has disproportionately affected communities of color, has made in-person voting an untenable option for many voters. And in light of the widely reported issues with the U.S. Postal Service, many voters will not be comfortable returning their completed ballots by mail. Drop boxes are the only acceptable option for many voters, which is why it is so critical to expand their availability. Technically, we still can't say how many Floridians actually voted during the primary. They haven't finished counting all the mail-in ballots in more than 40 counties. Your calendar of events begins at 8.30 with a meeting of the trustees at the University of Central Florida. The Florida Healthy Kids Corporation Board of Directors meets by conference call at 9. The Florida Defense Support Task Force, which works on protecting and enhancing military installations, is meeting online at 9. The Office of the U.S. Trade Representative holds an online hearing at 9 about trade policies involving seasonal produce, an issue which has drawn heavy attention from the Florida Department of Agriculture. The Daytona State College Board of Trustees meets at 2. At 4, the Florida Department of Business and Professional Regulation Secretary, Palsy Bashirs, State Senator Jeff Brandis, and State Senator Tom Wright take part in the Daytona Regional Chamber of Commerce online event about business regulations and liability during the COVID-19 pandemic. And the Florida Department of Agriculture Medical Cannabis Advisory Committee meets in a conference call at 4. Finally today, a Florida man is charged with aggravated stalking of a victim under the age of 12 after being captured on video outside her room 
in the nude. The sheriff of Santa Rosa County says 50-year-old Eric Strait of Navarre is a practicing nudist who was going into his neighbor's yard late at night and knocking on the window of a 7-year-old girl so he could talk to her. The girl told authorities she'd spoken to him about five times after he knocked on the window. Strait was arrested after her parents installed a surveillance camera pointed directly at the girl's window. That's it for today's episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.